From WFSU Public Media, welcome to Perspectives. I'm Tom Flanagan. Our program, a pre-recorded conversation via Zoom, and we recorded this on Tuesday, February 15th for on-air playback Thursday, February 17th. At a time when a lot of folks <laughs> consider anything that happened before the pandemic to be ancient history, it, it might seem a little bit retrograde to think about what was going on more than 10,000 years ago. But um, it also seems that just a little ways east of the hustle and bustle of what is uh, now Tallahassee, Florida, there is a unique looking glass into what was happening back then. And in fact, that extends to many areas in this part of the world. It seems um, one of the earlier settlements for people in that long ago time frame was in our part of the world. And that includes along the banks of the Oscilla River, which in case you don't know, is a uh, really beautiful meandering stream. It gets its uh, start up in South Georgia's Brooks County and then kind of wanders down through Jefferson County, eventually uh, delivers its flow into the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, there's also the Wakulla River, which probably more people are a, a bit familiar with. And that also has some prehistorical ramifications. We're going to talk about all of that today on Perspectives because we will be chatting with members of the Oscilla Research Institute to talk about what has been going on with their research and also about an upcoming conference that is going to be open for folks who are interested in what happened here before the pandemic, if you will, way before the pandemic. So let's meet the panel and we're so happy that they could join us today. First is the chair of the Institute, uh, Jim Dunbar, Master's and PhD in Anthropology from FSU, Field Supervisor, Senior Archaeologist with the Division of Historical Resources, Bureau of Archaeological Research, and also an archaeological consultant for FSU and the state of Florida. A whole bunch of things to put on that business card, Jim Dunbar. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah, and I love that background that you have of some of our earliest uh, neighbors, proto-neighbors, I guess we could call them, here in the uh, North Florida and South Georgia area. That's, that's really a sweet mural in the background, Jim. Thanks for including that. We also have the vice chair of the Institute, Jack Carswell, a business person, co-founder and officer at Carswell Greenfield and Kunstler, native of Jefferson County, local historian, FSU alum. The list goes on and on. And Jack, it is good to see your smiling face once again, sir. Good to see you. We must have done this about five times now, haven't we? I think we have, but every time we do, we peel back the layers of that onion just a little bit more, and it's always fascinating how much more there is to find out. So really looking forward to today's show. Thanks for coming on deck. And uh, almost didn't recognize this next guy without his uh, his diving equipment here. Andy Hemmings, anthropology doctorate from University of Florida, executive director at Paleo to Pioneer, a whole bunch of other things. Andy, how you doing, sir? Very good. I'm, it's silly. I realize I'm a stranger in a strange land being the gator on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We we believe in diversity, Andy, so you don't have to worry about that, sir. Good to have you. So let's talk a little bit first about the what exactly the Institute is, the Oscilla Research Institute. And I, I guess we uh, defer to the chair on this one. So um, Jim Dunbar, if you can give us some background here, how did this whole thing get started and what do you guys focus on in that research? And uh, gosh, I guess it was 2012, uh, we had a first conference, and as a result of that, uh, we decided to, to form a 501c nonprofit, and we call it the Oscilla Research Institute, and it's dedicated to education and research, uh, and we look at archaeology, cultural resources, as well as Anything you can name in the earth sciences is, is fair game. And geomatics as well uh, with our, one of our board members is George Cole, a very well-known geomatics specialist uh, and helps us out with uh, new technologies like LIDAR, which is uh, laser beams that come down to the earth from an airplane and highly accurately map not only the tops of vegetation, but what's underneath them, the ground. 
and new LIDAR technology, bathymetry that uh, in a clear water spring like Wakulla, you can see the entire bottom of the river and measure the distance from the water surface to the bottom. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, and very helpful, especially given the fact that the clarity of the springs has, uh, in a lot of ways, deteriorated over the years. So it's a lot more difficult to see what's at the yeah. bottom of that spring than back in the day when, you know, all time folks in this area will remember when the glass bottom boats were out at Wakulla Springs just about year round and you could look all the way down to the entrance of the cave system with a, a clarity that was just absolutely remarkable and we'll talk a little bit about that too but jack carswell maybe you can give us a, as a a longtime member here of the institute why is this area such a prime location as they say in real estate location 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 for doing research into early history of people the crown jewel for us is the Osceola River. And I, one of the first meetings we had in uh, the Osceola Institute was just on, written on napkins. Jim Dunbar talked about a core they had just drilled down on the Osceola River. And, and that core went back to, went down to a level that was 40,000 years ago. And in, in the bottom of that core were all sorts of seeds and, and evidence of that period of time. And, and Jim said, theoretically, that we could go back and re reconstruct Earth's environment year by year based on that core sample. The Osceola River, as you described earlier, is, is this little river that has, for I don't know, Jim and Andy probably do know, for 100,000 years or so, and recorded the events on this planet. And it's, it's one of the best, it's among the best areas of preservation on Earth, I think. Isn't that right, Andy? Yeah, it's really quite spectacular. Because the rivers are so flat, and so slow moving, things don't get eroded. And so once something settles in one of the deeper spots in, in many of these rivers across the Big Bend, but especially the Alcilla, Wakulla, Wasissa, uh, they can be they can sit there undisturbed for 40, 50,000 years, older than we're able to directly date with the radiocarbon method at this point. And of course, everything younger than that is in there as well. And one thing I was gonna add to that, uh, I've been developing a LIDAR map of a huge area. I mean, it encompasses parts of the Wasissa way, way, way to the east and, and captures uh, Cow Creek, the Ocilla, and believe it or not, we have found an ancient riverbed that's high and dry, no longer flows very close to the Ocilla, and Lord knows how old that thing is. Um, it's just unbelievable. It, water tables were higher at one time, and anyway, uh, that will be a, one of the discussions in the conference. Okay, and more on that conference to come. Andy, go ahead, sir. Um, I was just going to say one of the reasons that we talked about the preservation that things are still here, but really what draws us today, location, 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 is that the that in the Pleistocene for the 50, 100,000 years or more, when this part of Florida was high and dry. The sea level was much lower and the coast was a hundred miles away, give or take. There was still a little bit of water here in these, in these river systems, which were basically springs and um, sinkholes at the time. And they drew the plants and animals. And of course the early people that are, you know, such great interest to many of us. Well, what so, was, what was going on in the rest of the country in the rest of the North American continent at the time that you're seeing a lot of people and animals in this area, what was forcing them down into this neck of the woods, if you will? You know, I don't know that Andy, you can follow me if you don't mind, but, uh, Florida and South Carolina, Georgia, uh on the east side of the rocky mountains had or appalachian mountains i should say had a uh, warm environment throughout the ice age that the mid-continent didn't have and from chesapeake bay at chesapeake bay northward uh you had animals like the woolly mammoth the cold adapted animals but on the south end of Chesapeake Bay, all the way down into Florida, you had the short-haired mammoth and animals like that. So there was a clear 
unusual thing going on in the southeastern U.S. that didn't happen anywhere else. And the last thing I'll say and let Andy take over is um, if you were in South America and you were, uh, say, a taper, somehow you migrated from South America through Central America and into Florida and into Georgia and in that southeastern on the east side of the Appalachian Mountains environmental zone and flourished. Uh, there were more species of animals in the southeast in the late Pleistocene than any other place in North America. So if you were a Paleo-Indian and wanted to go to one heck of a, a, a supermarket, this was the place because you had to get your animals the old fashioned way, hunt them. Anyway, Andy, you want to add to that? Well, sure. At, at a hemispheric scale, or just even just for the moment, thinking about North America, uh, places like Erie, Pennsylvania, when we have people living in the Osceola and the Wakulla, like at the Wakulla Lodge site, by the time there's people living there, Erie, Pennsylvania has two miles of ice on it. Chicago, about a mile. Uh, effectively, they don't exist as a point on the landscape that you could live. There's ice and nothing else. So the when you look at a map, it would have been very different in terms of where you could actually live. And that's why, in part, as Jim's brought up, the concentration of animals here and uh, and other wild um, you know plants and whatnot is really dense and very attractive. And it's very clearly reflected in the early people showing up here. In, in the quantities that they do. There's there's a scattering of those people across the rest of the new world, but for whatever reason, we seem to find we were a very nice place to be in the Ice Age. Yeah, and it sounds like Florida tourism started, what, about 15,000 years ago rather than uh, the more contemporary version that we're thinking of uh, right now. How did those people live? Jack Carswell, do you have any insight? In what, what kind of people are we talking about here? How advanced or not so advanced were they? How did they live and what did they do besides hunt all this, you know, wonderful supermarket of animal life that was down in this area? Actually, I don't have any idea. Jim and and uh, and Andy do. They're the scientists in this group. And uh, but I will the one interesting part to me is a, a um, archaeologist and and I was with a group of people in the in the south part of Jefferson County, close to the Gulf. And the, and the archaeologist said to the touring group, he said, if you look behind kind of the side to that tree, you'll see a mound. That's a trash mound. And that trash mound's about a thousand years old. And he said, and if you, if you bend over and look just to the right of the river there, there's, there's a trash mound. And there's families that live in, in that area called the Walkers and the Bolands. And he said, and that trash mound is about uh, a month and a half old. And it was put there by the Walkers and the Bolands. So the interesting, the fascinating, the fascinating idea is that that, that environment has nurtured people for what, 14, 15,000 years. And they ate, they all ate shrimp. They ate crabs. They ate, wild turkeys they, the both mounds had the same bones and remains in them boy what One, is what is old is is new again and jim dunbar i think that what you guys are finding is sort of rewriting the proto or the prehistory books if you will i recall a national geographic article from what about six years ago that focused on the Osceola and the Wasissa and the Wakulla basins and some of the discoveries that were being made there insofar as early settlements were concerned. It kind of predates what we thought just, what, a couple decades ago about where people came from and when they came. That's correct. It, it once was a, almost a fact that nobody, no people were in the Americas prior to about 13,000 years ago. And somehow the Clovis culture shows up. And uh, at the Paige Latson site, which is actually now uh, 
I've got to get that thing moving, but it's a National Historic Landmark nomination, which is above the National Register. Uh, it's the oldest site that's verified. Jesse Halligan and Mike Waters came in from Texas A&M behind our work and found the same thing we did at the same age. So uh, it's a confirmed archaeological site. I would think it's the oldest east of the Mississippi, Andy. The, the least contested of the old ones. There's some that may prove to be in the 2021, but the jury's a little bit out on those. Right. We're well, that's, why was, that's why I was saying confirmed. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that would, you can use that as, I, I try to say, least, con least contested or most widely accepted. And, and what do you find at that site, Andy? What sorts of artifacts and remnants of those early settlers are st still there? The artifact assemblages from the, the two earliest ones are Paige Latson and, and then the Wakala Lodge site, I think, right now. Um, both in the 14,000, Page Ladson's 14,500 years old. The artifacts thus far at the real earliest stages are stone, um, biface fragment, and that's sort of code for just saying it's a point, probably, or a small knife that we haven't really found enough of or, or enough like it to give it an uh, independent name, like we would say a Clovis point or a Swanee point, some of the later things here in Florida. Um, there are stone flakes from both the manufacture of those kinds of, you know, bifaces or points and other kinds of tools, basically making a razor thin edge that you can cut or scrape or, or do any manner, any number of um, activities that needed to be done at the time. And certainly at Page Ladson, it's just, those tools are associated with a good many um, Pleistocene animal bones, both extinct things and things that survived in the area today as well as a wealth of, um, I want to say, 66, 66 plants that were found in those levels. Some of it actually uh, stomach contents of mastodons, where that's the polite way of saying we think they were still in the mastodon and hadn't gone through yet, but um, digestives. Are, <laughs> but um, th so the, the organic material that is not necessarily artifactual, but is obviously present at the time those people are occupying not just Florida, but that specific spot at that specific site. Um, at Wakulla, we don't have as good organic preservation on land, but at 13,500 and 13,000 years old underwater, we've begun to find a considerable number of um, plant material, little twigs and stuff, not a whole lot wonderfully identifiable yet, uh, but also two small fragments of bone tools that we know bone and ivory tools dating 13,000 years old and older are, are in the Osceola and the Wakulla, but finding them in a nice context, I think those are the oldest organic tools. Wouldn't you say, Jim? No, no that's that's correct. Yeah, I, I thought the Wakulla finds were quite interesting and yeah. we're just scratching the surface there. We're, we're talking about intellectually and anatomically modern homo sapiens sapiens, thinking humans and that other than speaking a very alien language and probably having radically different haircuts than us, <clears throat> if you walked by a bunch of paleo Indians dressed like everyone else at, at the mall, you wouldn't think anything of it. That that it's just some other people that are, you know, that that are adapted to a landscape that would would be very difficult on us because we are not used to living based on our wits and carrying everything pretty much that we own with us. I do know some folks who live down in the Apalachicola National Forest. I think you could kind of cut them loose for a number of, of months on their own, and they could probably fare just fine. So maybe, uh, like you were saying, uh, Jack Carswell, when it comes to the uh, remnants of different populations, there's a lot more commonality than maybe we might think of. But how many folks are we talking about? Were these small, scattered settlements of people, or given the fact that there was so much happening in those ice age periods up to the north was this a pretty significant number of people who settled in this area even 10 13 14,000 years ago jim you got any numbers or projections of how many people i think, people the, were... I think the, the true answer there is that we don't know uh you can find a greater quantity of clovis artifacts that are 
younger than the things that paid slats, and you can find a greater number of spawning points after Clovis. And by the time <clears throat> the uh, ice age pretty much ended, and we start calling the, we leave the Pleistocene and go into the Holocene at about 11,000, four or 500 years ago, uh, the people were making a different tool set, side notch points. And my Lord, you can find those in greater and greater numbers. All that suggests, but doesn't, it's a proxy evidence thing that the populations were growing, uh, but the demographics of what the first inhabitants and how much of a population, we don't know that yet. I think it's something that might be discoverable or at least to the extent where you could make some educated uh, extrapolations from the data you have, but we're, the, the, the discovery at the uh, Paige Latson site and Andy Slothole site and some other places, Wakala Springs has a pre-Clovis component. Uh, we're just now scratching the surface. So it's like we're in the discovery mode. We're not ready to go to a court action and, and, and present our evidence all the way across the board. It, it, that's a good way of putting it. Um, well, it, it, it surprised me, folks, uh, for some of the researchers who've been dealing with the Mission San Luis property that the estimate they had was that at the time of the Spanish settlement there, pre-1704, when the Brits came in and burned the mission and all that thing, that down in that area, uh, probably about where that uh, that new target is located on Tennessee Street there, might have been as many as 3,000 um, Appalachian folks in a rather large settlement down just in that area right there and that there were many more scattered around what is currently Tallahassee it sounds like we may have had a lot more folks than we uh, had previously imagined being in this area Jack Carswell there's going to be a conference here that you you were talking about before we get back to the discussion could you just fill us in on what is going on with this uh, conference that the institute is uh, hosting and how folks can find out more about that they can go to go to our website. The, uh, the the conference was really this this conference. The idea was Jim's idea actually, and it's an it's an idea to compare the uh, Chesapeake Bay area and the Galveston area, and the preservation and the the archaeological archaeological activities that have gone on there and see how that relates to the Osceola River as we go forward and what we should how we should treat our treasure. So we're going to look we're going to look on both sides of us to see what we ought to do to go as we go forward. Somebody had said in one of our conferences a scholar that I think I think it was Mike Waters who thought that there were probably 200 years worth of research to do here in the in the uh, Osceola River. And uh, it's, that's kind of the exciting part to me that the conference uh, uh, has a lot of special things. There is a, we are, the Arcella Research Institute is in possession of a, a um, skeletal model of, of a Macedon, which we're going to construct on the floor of the, of the uh, opera house here. I don't know how big is that thing, Jim? Gosh, I'm, it's a, probably 14 feet at the shoulder or something. It will be our version of a grumpy old man in uh, in the the Grand Ole Opry building. And, and the, the thing that's exciting, and actually, as I sit here and listen to Jim and Andy and and you, Tom, and that we have created in the last five years or so an important uh, Florida asset in the Osceola uh, research Institute and uh, we have made enormous progress something special is going on at this Institute and in Jefferson County and you, know, you can hear it when you listen to Jim and when you listen to Andy it's 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 pretty exciting and it's my hope that uh, one day that there'll uh, 
be a little cornerstone in the building here that says Andy's name and Jim's name and my name. <laughs> <laughs> so because because at Caltech there's a stone like that, and at Harvard there's one, at Duke there's one, and we have uh, big aspirations for the Osceola Research Institute. So when's the so, conference coming up, Jack? First weekend, I believe, Jim, you know better than I do. It's, it's uh, Friday, March the 4th, and uh, half a day Saturday, March the 5th. And it's going to be a little bit different. The title is uh, Cultural Heritage, Natural Resources, and Land Stewardship, Significance of Appalachia, Chesapeake, and Galveston Bays. And uh, what we're going to look at is just, it's not just archaeology. This is getting into the earth science, but we're going to have five sessions between uh, Friday and Saturday. And the first one is geology, sea level, and changing landscapes. The second session is paleobotany, present uh, plant assemblages and the environment extant animals, assemblages, and past migrations and extinction. That's session three. Session four is technology conservation in the future. And then finally, session five is human cultures through time and the story of us. And uh, there's three speakers in each one of those categories. Uh, We were lucky to get, uh, you know, geologists, from the USGS, uh, University of Central Florida, and a retired uh, geologist from uh, Texas that's coming over. Uh, For paleobotany, we've got uh, Deborah Willard, who's a USGS botanist um, that has done work really all through that out the Southeast, tell you the truth, but she's gonna be talking about the the old plants and animals, or plants rather, uh, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay area, you have Lee Newsom. She's going to be talking about uh, the plant anim- uh, the plant assemblages in, in Florida. Uh, and she's, uh, she got a MacArthur Genius Fellowship some years ago. She's really top-notch. Bruce Albert for Texas. And on down the line. The uh, other interesting part about it, Tom, is, is this will be the first year that that it we're going to stream it live around the world. We already have uh, registrations from Canada and from uh, Japan, so you'll be able to uh, to tune into this from wherever you are in the world. And it, I think it also is going to be on on YouTube, so you can call it up at any moment. We're also going to record the whole thing so you could go to the Osceola Research Institute's website and, and, uh, and call up any of the speakers. And essentially, we get to archive all the uh, speakers at these conferences in that way. But that's pretty exciting that you could sit in Berkeley and in the University of California and, and listen to the speaker who happens to be speaking on a subject that you have some interest in. Well, if nothing else, the pandemic has certainly honed our skills when it comes to doing this sort of stuff. But Andy Hemmings, and I want to run this by everybody here, because I can even hear some folks saying, oh boy, this is really neat and this is interesting, and but it may be a little bit on the arcane side. What do you think all this research and what we're learning about our very, very far distant ancestors and how they lived and all. How does that connect to us today? How do you think their experiences link up with us? And I, I, I think Jim already hinted at this in a couple of the uh, seminars that are going to be taking place as part of the conference. But, but for you, Andy Hemmings, how does this connect? The, the same issues that have affected people in as long as we've existed still affect us today. Our technology allows us to be very removed from them. I'm, I'm looking at you, air conditioning um, and refrigeration and electricity. But the fact of the matter is uh, the climate always changes. 
plant and animal communities wax and wane. They come together and change. The sea level rises and falls. And we're talking at tens of years up to tens of thousands of years. And so some of the issues that affected Clovis people, the pre-Clovis people of the rivers we've been talking about are the same issues that we're dealing with right now. And part of what we're looking at doing with this conference is compare and contrast. What was that landscape like? Who were the players on it? The people, the plants, the animals? How did change occur over time? And then really focusing in one of the sections on how do we deal with that now? So uh, the, the notion that uh, if you don't know your past, you're sort of doomed to repeat it plays out in this arena as well. That's not simply a historical thing. That also matters in terms of how we survive on an ever-changing landscape or environment. And Faulkner, William Faulkner really said it when he said that when you're talking about the past, the truth is the past is not past at all. We stand on the past. The past is here with us. Although Jack is, uh, as Andy already sort of alluded to, we have a tendency nowadays to think that our technology and our sophistication, if you will, protects us from things that impacted our ancestors. Oh, we can get around that. We have the power through our whatever to do that. But but Jim, you're you're I see you're shaking your head. There's there's more of a connection here with our forebearers than perhaps we uh, care to admit. Right. You know, I, I think that's true. Uh, it's, you look at the Arctic and the Arctic permafrost is melting away now. And we have a problem that we didn't expect with methane escaping into the atmosphere at faster and faster rates. Uh, Paleo-Indians that transitioned from Paleo-Indian to early archaic that was a challenge for people in that they had been accustomed to hunting large pack animals like horses and bison, maybe camel, uh, or occasionally going after a big elephant. You get one elephant and you know how to preserve the meat. You don't have to hunt for a very long time after that. And I believe they knew how to preserve the meat for extended periods. Um, so when all those animals died out, what are we gonna do now? It was a transition for humans to, to get over what they had relied on for thousands and thousands of years to all of a sudden be honed down to limited to white tail deer, fish, turtles, whatever they could find. Uh, and, uh, it, it, it was a true transition. We're going through some transitions right now that if we don't stand up and pay attention, we're going to be in trouble as a human society across the globe. But anyway, I don't get on to that very much. But that was part of the purpose of founding the Australia Research Institute was, was not only to, to develop independent, uh, research but to perform an educational function. Our, our idea is that the better informed we are, the better decisions we'll make. Well, and I'm thinking even something contemporaneous with what's going on as we record this program, uh, the folks down in Wakulla County are looking at their land use situation just at one particular intersection, and there is a feeder, apparently, from what the uh, the hydrologists tell us, going almost directly beneath that location to Wakulla Springs. And so what happens on that site could potentially impact not only the springs, but uh, the surrounding aquifer, the drinking supply for the folks in the area. So uh, again, Andy Hemmings, it sounds like everything is connected with what those folks had to deal with. We're still having to deal with on our own today. They're not independent issues. The the environment, the water supply, we're, we're interconnected. We are part of our environment, even if our technology allows us to feel like we're not sometimes so what do you think as long as we're talking to you andy what do you think lies ahead here as far as the ongoing uh research is you can't predict everything of course but the trend line 
is that more and more will be discovered. We'll have better and better concepts of exactly what happened in the far distant past and maybe fill in some of those gaps that right now are still a little bit vague and uh, indistinct? The most humbling thing in the last five years really is how small science has gotten. And I feel like I've read enough that I've gotten to the point of realizing how little I know. That in point of fact, what we can learn from ever smaller pieces of tools or plants or animal remains in terms of the genetics, the relatedness and unrelatedness of, of populations and individuals, both human and other animals or, and even plants, we can ask and answer questions now that we wouldn't have even tried 10 years ago because the ability to find that kind of information didn't exist. So being able to get into some of these sites and collect the kind of samples that now we can find out what kind of fungi grew on them and whether they lived in the stomachs of mastodons or some other kind of animal, where they originated, whether it was South America or, or developed here, those kinds of things. The, the individual blank pages for what happened 15,000 and one year ago, we could start putting individual, you know, we can start putting lines and paragraphs on there and then move to the next page and, and start filling in the picture a little bit more. And we get not just a better understanding of dates and who was where, when, but how they flourished, made a living and, and blossomed into the populations that we see later that, that Jim was talking about a little bit ago. How and our, our ability to disperse that information is greatly enhanced these conferences have attracted three or 400 people and they're lay people, not academics. People, that's an important function here. Yeah, we use a lot of, uh, it, it, I think at Wakala Springs, we had the second greatest number of volunteer hours of any group that they kept numbers on. And they hit, they were working alongside professionals and and the crew helping to do everything and it was uh i think it was a good experience for everybody that was involved with that project and by the way we have just been awarded two major grants uh to uh, investigate the damage it was done by hurricane michael on sites in wakulla springs and on sites along the Taylor County coastline that got whacked by the hurricane. Uh, the Taylor County site, well, the, the Wakulla County sites are all Appalachian Indian, right at or just before European contact. The uh, Taylor County sites, uh, one is a, a mound midden complex that was damaged by the hurricane. One is a Confederate salt works that was damaged by the hurricane, but still has some rock structure left to map before it's too late, so to speak. And the third one is a major mound complex, uh, Spring Warrior mound complex that uh, appears to have Wheaton Island and um, Swift Creek mound components. And all of those are gonna be nominated to the National Register, but that's sort of a side issue, but sort of proud that we were able to uh, get those grants. Congratulations on the grants and also that recognition, Jim. But you bring up a really good point, too. It is not just the professional anthropologists and archaeologists and researchers and the people that they enlist in these searches who turn up things. You can be digging in your own backyard to put in, I don't know, a new shed or something. And given the density of these past populations, you may come up with something that seems out of the ordinary, perhaps is connected to those early times. If someone does that, what should they do? We all remember when folks used to go to the Swanee River and dive and pull up arrowheads, and boy, that was that was a fun thing to do and build your collection. You can't do that anymore. So if people find something that they suspect may be connected to our early past, uh, what, what should they do? Yeah, I, I don't want to dwell on this, but the reason the isolated finds thing in Florida Rivers went away is the antiquity market 
some of the people involved with that were making over 500,000 a year selling our heritage. That's not a good thing, period. But uh, I will say that uh, we've got a lot of volunteers that they understand that, especially if they put some time in with us and see what we're doing and how meticulous it really is. Uh, Andy wanted to say something, I think. Well, I was going to just say that our interest is in information. So if you find something, right. we want to help you find out. We want to find out. So if we can identify something, please contact the Osceola Research Institute. They'll put you in touch with one of us. And we'll try and tell you what it is and why it's important and why you want to preserve it. And what, you know, what kind of things can be learned by yeah. fossils or artifacts or, or whatever it is. Be glad to help. I, I would add to that a little bit more. We have uh, taken in a collection that Tall Timbers Research Station had for a couple decades. Uh, we took in the uh, Don Serbosic collection. He was uh, he died maybe about a decade ago, but he was the one that got us started in the Acilla to begin with, because he thought that some of the things on the river bottom, he and another fellow named Ben Waller had scientific and importance. And boy, I remember Don telling me, you know, when you find these mastodon bones, you find this stuff that looks like chopped grass. And we found that in buckets full, if not barrels full at the Page Latson site. And that's the digesta of a mastodon. They were big animals and they had a lot of digesta in them, which is a, a polite way of putting it. But anyway, Andy. I was gonna say one of the things that'll be on display a little bit and at the uh, conference are some of the materials that, that Don, Sir, Mr. Sabasic in particular, had a real eye for the really rare animals of the Pleistocene. So all the little capybaras, the, the funny extinct muskrats and, and uh, tapers and, and other things um, because of the donation of these collections, these animals that are normally rare, even in the hands of researchers like us, um, we were getting to, to deal with them and learn a lot more about them. And like I said, some of the other kinds of things we other, do with uh, genetics and whatever, uh, or things we hope to deal with down the line. One other thing, the, uh, the mastodon that we're going to erect is Priscilla the Mastodon, actually a bull Mastodon, but sort of like a boy named Sue kind of thing. Don Serbosic uh, collected that in uh, the Acela River. It's now the real skeletons on display in the Gainesville Museum of Natural History, but we have a fiberglass cast of Priscilla and uh, that's what we were erecting to have in the uh, downstairs area of the Grand Ole Opera. So um, anyway, we have taken in collections. Uh, people can donate their collections to any uh, state museum, uh, Florida History Museum, the Bureau of Archaeological Research, uh, the museum in Gainesville. There's, there are museums throughout the state that will accept materials like that and and of course we do but the beauty of that it they represent a voucher and the voucher is that these things came from this place and if somebody says well how do you know that well come over here and look at these collections it's uh instead of being lost in a in a box on a shelf that kind of thing but is it a good idea to leave, if you find something, before you go digging it up out of the ground, maybe to leave it in C2 on site until someone who knows what they're doing can come and check it out because you remove it from that context and it may not be as valuable or as informational if you take it away. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, and believe it or not, that has happened. Uh, people have reported finds in uh, various places, uh, archeological organiza organizations around the state of Florida 
have come in and well, this is this is worth looking at and and take their time and it's archaeology and forensic science at a crime scene is not that far apart. What we look at is just you know happened a long time ago, and whatever pieces of the puzzle we get, you know we bring carbon dating, uh, genetics, genetics, and various kinds of things like that. Um, I don't think I, we have mentioned this yet, but we do have supporters that have helped us uh, uh, for the conference. And I think that's, uh, if I could mention them, do you mind? Sure, go right ahead, Jim. <laughs> okay, the United States Department of Agriculture Natural Resource Conservation Service has given a grant, awarded a grant to Tall Timbers and we were awarded a subgrant from Tall Timbers to put on these conferences, one this year, one in 2023, and another in 2025. And, uh, and then the uh, uh, Duke Energy has uh, helped us, and Jefferson County has helped us in a company called GFAST, which is Georgia, Florida Aviation Search Team. And they get right behind hurricane damage and go out and help people. Uh, but they're centered in Jefferson County as well. And if not for them, we wouldn't be able to put on these meetings. And um, this particular conference is gonna focus in on the bays, uh, Chesapeake, Appalachia, and Galveston. The next conference is just gonna neck it down just to Florida only. And the last conference is gonna just look at the Big Bend area of Florida. And then there's so much research that's going on, I, we can probably uh, get all the speakers we need for that, is all I can say. And it's not gonna be just archeology, span it's gonna be the earth sciences and archeology span and, and, and earth sciences, one of the big things is gonna be water quality. Which is which our keynote speaker is going to talk about right, and just as relevant today as it was uh, fourteen thousand years ago. I, again, that's going to be all day on March the fourth, a Friday, and half a day on the fifth, which is a Saturday. That'll be at the Monticello Opera House that is coming up, folks. Uh, just a few minutes remaining in our perspectives today, and I wanted to kind of go around the bend here, give everyone a chance to make any final comments or. Um, uh, throw out any additional ideas that you may have. Uh, Andy Hemmings, why don't we start with you, sir? Sure. Um, the conference should be an awful lot of fun. We have a number of interesting topics covering and comparing and contrasting, you know, the three different areas. And between the speeches, there's the, obviously the Mastodon on display and a number of other things. And we're all standing around. So if you want to talk to us about anything or if you have questions, there's you'll be a up to your elbows in scientists that can, that can tell you what they think about what's going on now and what happened then. Or maybe up to your elbows in proto-pachyderm poo. I don't know. That may <laughs> be a possibility as well. Jack Carswell, it's your thoughts, sir. <laughs> as, as Andy said, the, one of the interesting things is this conference is free. All you have to do is, is to show up, walk upstairs, sit down, and listen to some of the outstanding scientists in the world tell you what they're doing and what they're thinking. The only reason I, I, I spent my life in the entertainment business in California and stuff, there's only one reason you really want to ever be famous is because you get to hang around people who are very interesting and you get to talk to them one-on-one the same way Andy is talking about, you can come over here, go to the opera house, and talk to Andy Hemmings. Andy Hemmings is a very famous scientist. So, I mean, you don't get to do that unless you're really in, in everyday life, unless you go to an event like this, or unless you're, you're rich and famous, invite them to come on your yacht. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> like the yacht they can't get under the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> there, <laughs> there you go, Jim Dunbar. You get the last words there. Okay. Well, uh, I'm really looking forward to the conference. The one thing I'll add is after the, every 
presentation, there's a 10 minute question and answer period. Uh, if you don't want to attend in person, you can zoom in. I think we're going to have it on YouTube as well. And after the conference is over with, you can pick it up on either of those platforms. We'll have it on our webpage as well. So it will be a public document for uh, now on, I guess. Um, and I think it's generally, I find that we have people come into the conference, come into our projects, and they may not be a trained scientist in this or that, but they have in their own right uh, throughout their lives, they've, they've developed skills that have immensely helped us. Um, one thing comes to mind, we found out that uh, using a laser underwater to strike a level all around so you could measure accurately. We took it to this guy uh, down in uh, near the uh, Novel Rise area and he looked at the thing and, and put this little tripod together. You can level it, you can do all these things. And uh, I think that green laser goes to 300 feet of water. So, you know, we, we get help from a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life. And I just find it fun. Uh, it, but there's a lot of hard work to it too. Uh, hours and hours of work. So anyway. Great way to get some insight into all that hard work and all that fun as well coming up on March 4th and 5th at the Monticello Opera House. Members and leadership of the Oscilla Research Institute, Jim Dunbar, Jack Carswell and Andy Hemmings, thank you all for being on Perspectives, and we'll catch you at the Opera House for the conference coming up next month, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. One one quick word for Andy. Go Knowles. (laughs) You're cruel, Jim Dunbar. You're cruel, sir. (laughs) You're breaking up, Jim. Sorry. (laughs) Perspectives produced by WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee. Thanks to Taylor Cox, Evan Rossi, Paul Dam, Amy Diaz, Viegas, Trisha Moynihan, and Lydell Rawls, among many others. Our director of content, Kim Kelling, executive producer, I'm Tom Flanagan. Hope you'll join us again next Thursday. That's also the day the intergovernmental agency that oversees the Blueprint Organization decides whether or not to endorse a multi-million dollar refurbishment of Florida State University's Doak Campbell Stadium. That program will be live in studio. We can't wait to hear your thoughts through phone calls and emails during the show. That's next week on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Take care.